is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. Rob's off today. I'm Chris Seedens. I'm Charles Feldman. Hunter's plea deal shot down. We go in-depth into why Hunter Biden's plea deal today fell apart in court. Actor Kevin Spacey avoiding prison time in the U.K., but will he be welcome back in Hollywood? We will go in-depth. And a committee in Congress tries to get to the bottom of the UFO mystery. We'll tell you what was said that may indicate we're not alone in the universe. We start with Hunter Biden and the plea deal gone wrong. Christine Adams is a former federal prosecutor and current L.A.-based attorney who focuses on white-collar investigations. Christine, thanks for being with us. Good afternoon. How odd is it, uh, maybe it's not, for uh, two parties, uh, the prosecutor, the defense attorneys, thinking they have a deal to come into a federal courtroom, especially on a, on a high-profile case such as this, only to have it fall apart at the last minute? It's, it is unusual. It's not entirely unusual. But what is unusual here is the reasons for the agreement falling apart. It appears that the court determined that there was an ambiguity in the agreement, and there evidently was, in that she asked the defense and the prosecution if they had come to an agreement about the scope of the immunity as it related to Mr. Biden's possibly representing foreign governments in violation of federal law. And the parties in court indicated they did not have such an agreement because the government said that the plea agreement did not contemplate immunity that went that far. And uh, in response to that, the defense said that the agreement was therefore null and void. Is this kind of a plea deal unusual for situations like this? This kind of a plea deal is quite unusual because you have such a wide range of charges being contemplated. You typically have plea deals that can contemplate tax charges. And if you have tax charges, then it's not unusual to see a resolution involving tax misdemeanors. Um, but what's unusual here is you have a deal that contemplates tax charges, it contemplates gun charges, and it contemplates this, um, you know, these facts around uh, potential violations relating to Mr. Biden's possibly representing foreign governments, you know, the alleged shakedown, so to speak. Um, that's what's particularly unusual about this kind of agreement. Uh, we also are now joined by uh, Chris Cameron, who is a reporter for The New York Times, who covered today's events uh, from the courtroom in Delaware. Chris, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, these things, this whole thing has become so political with uh, the Republicans, as you know, uh, saying that uh, Biden had gotten a sweetheart deal. Now I suspect some Democrats are going to say, oh, it fell apart because the judge is, I believe, a, a Trump appointee. But it does seem, as uh, Christine Adams just told us, as if there was some real ambiguity in this deal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, this, you know, the more uh, this morning, the expectation that this would be a fairly routine hearing discussing Hunter Biden's plea deal. But this was anything but routine. The judge was really meticulously going through uh, line by line of this agreement, uh, scrutinizing specific provisions. Um, and she asked the prosecution and the defense essentially to make changes that would clarify her own role in the agreement and insert language that would limit the scope of immunity from prosecution that it would have granted Hunter Biden for past business dealings. And so what we're seeing here is that the judge, um, you know, was raising some pretty clear issues that she had with the deal and sort of asked 
both the prosecution and defense to come back, uh, reconvene, discuss um, how, like, what changes are going to are they going to make, and bring it back before the court. And Chris, I understand. While you were not in the the courtroom itself, you were at the courthouse. What kind of a reaction were you you hearing from people afterwards? Um, I mean, there was certainly surprise. I mean, we went into this hearing expecting it to be fairly short and concise, and it went on for more than three hours. I mean, there was a recess in the middle um, where uh, the prosecution and defense were shown to have disagreed pretty strongly on how far uh, the deal took Mr. Biden in terms of immunity from further prosecution. And so the two sides had to huddle in the courtroom and sort of decide what does this specific line mean on immunity? And this was all just you know, very surprising. I mean, these deals don't typically go this way. It was all buttoned up for a while, and we came in thinking that this was going to be pretty straightforward, and it turned out not to be. All right, Chris, thank you again. That's Chris Cameron uh, joining us. He's a reporter for The New York Times. He was at the courthouse. We were also joined by Christine Adams, former federal prosecutor. Right now, though, a jury in London has acquitted Kevin Spacey on sexual assault charges. They stemmed from claims made by four men dating back 20 years. With us now is Mark Malkin, senior editor at Variety and host of the Just for Variety podcast. Mark, thanks for being with us. Good afternoon. So uh, if my count is right, uh, there was a case in uh, New England uh, against Kevin Spacey that was dropped he uh, won a, uh, a civil uh, action against him in New York, and now he was acquitted on criminal charges in London. So the question on the table is, can he resurrect what before all of this was an incredible career? I mean, to your point, what an incredible career, you know, an Oscar winner, um, an actor's actor, but I don't see anyone at this point running to work with Kevin Spacey. He is very, very tainted. Um, Yes, he was found um, not guilty on all the charges, complaints in the UK. One of those complaints could have ended him in prison um, for a life sentence. But I don't see Hollywood right now running to rally around Kevin Spacey to work with him. Yeah, I think that's what everybody's kind of wondering. First of all, does he want to continue his acting career? And what does Hollywood do with with somebody like Kevin Spacey? I mean, at one point, you know, he was saying that he had people who were clamoring to work with him. They really wanted to work with him. Um, I think, you know, we'll see if there's any proof of that. If um, deals do come through, um, there was at one point he was signed for a independent film in Europe. But then they ended up replacing him. Um, He was supposed to star in it, but they replaced him. So I just don't think, you know, you're going to see any red carpets rolled out for Kevin Spacey. Yes, maybe he could have some sort of career in Europe. um, But I think even that um, is unlikely. Kevin Spacey just is not made for a comeback. Isn't there, though, uh, Mark, a a kind of interesting I don't know if irony is the right word for it, but maybe it is that that Hollywood, which does, I think, consider itself to be a fairly liberal town that is always clamoring for uh, justice and and the right things being done. Yet uh, it appears as if based on what you're saying, they are not willing, perhaps, to give work to somebody who not once but twice in courts of law was found to be not guilty or in the civil case not responsible, one would think they would want to embrace their 
otherwise fairly liberal, you know, thinking. Listen, you know, Hollywood is not consistent um, with something like this. You know, there are people who do make comebacks. There are people that Hollywood does embrace again. You know, Mel Gibson, you know, for many years um, was a person people were not interested in working with because of his controversies surrounding him. And then he was getting big studio pictures. So really, it's just this case-by-case basis. I think with Kevin Spacey, there were just so many claims against him that I think it came down to, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, maybe legally. Um, He wasn't found um, responsible um, for any of these claims, but I think Hollywood just said, you know what, this is, this is, this is gasoline on a fire. It is not worth the trouble. And you have to think, let's say they did sign him for a movie. The movie promotion would be all about working with Kevin Spacey after everything that has been presented against him, all the allegations. You wouldn't focus on the movie. It would not be about the work. Mark, I hope this isn't a silly question, but I'm going to throw it at you anyway. Is, is there a chance that maybe an unknown uh, director, producer, somebody who wants to put together maybe a low-budget film might uh, contact somebody like a Kevin Spacey to to front their movie, be the, the star in their movie, to uh, you know, knowing that it's going to it's going to create a buzz? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, listen, you know, when when there were, was this one project that was announced with Kevin Spacey, it made a lot of headline news. But I think that's a very big gamble, especially if you're first starting out to say, you know what, I'm going to start out and the risk is I'm going to take Kevin Spacey. Your career then will be defined as the per- the one person who may have said, you know what, I'm the person who's going to back Kevin Spacey. I think that's probably risky. But I think to your point, you know, there are people who believe any publicity is good publicity. So there you go. And what about uh, uh, Mother Time? Uh, in, in other words, if he's on the sidelines for X number of years and then decides to make a comeback, will Hollywood eventually, eventually forgive? You know, that, you know, if I had a crystal ball for something like that, yeah. I'd probably make a lot of money. Um, that, that's hard to tell. We don't know what the environment. Listen, there are things that Kevin was alleged to do that, you know, decades ago, people ignored or it didn't make it into the news. So you had a career, you were fine. So, you know, it all depends on where um, the world is, where Hollywood is at that point. But I think we're talking pretty far off, you know, interesting to note that, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Spacey was cleared of all these charges on his 64th birthday. So he got a birthday present, but, you know, he is 64. You know, will he be moving back to the U.S. and try to make a stake in Hollywood again? I just don't think it's going to happen. He is a very uh, accomplished, not only performer, but of course he ran the old Vic in in London for quite some time, right? Um, Could he have a career even in Hollywood as a director? You know, that's an interesting interesting question. You know, could he sort of pivot where he's not in front of a camera? Again, I think right now, you know— what we think of when we think Kevin Spacey now, we don't think of the Oscar winner. We don't think of House of Cards. Most people are thinking this is a guy who is to alleged uh, committed, you know, uh, sexual sorts, sexual misconduct. And I think that's really um, how he's defined at the moment. So even as a director, again, what people, you know, what financiers are going to come around and say, you know what, I want to give money to this guy. That's, you know, that's a, Again, like I said before, that's a gamble that I don't think that many people are willing to take. Yeah, Mark, thank you. Again, that's Mark Malkin. He is a senior editor at Variety, host of the Just for Variety podcast.
A little bit later is the government, like our government, hiding information about UFOs. Some whistleblowers, they're telling Congress the answer is yes. We'll get into today's rather intriguing hearing. Right now, though, uh, Can't Drive 55, seven big automakers teaming up to build a, a massive electric vehicle charging network in North America. This would rival Tesla's system. Uh, Paul Eisenstein is publisher and editor-in-chief of the DetroitBureau.com, which covers the automotive world. Paul, thank you for joining us today. First of all, how, how, how big of a system would this be exactly, and could it uh, someday be a case where we're seeing as many charging stations as we do gas stations? Uh, you probably will never need quite as many because remember, most EV owners today and looking forward likely will continue to charge at home. Uh, and in most cases, you'll just never run out of charge because you're always going to be able to plug in at the end of the night. But there still is a need for a lot more charges for people that drive long distances, uh, particularly on vacations. Uh, we have what they call uh, EV charging deserts in many parts of the country. Certainly, if you want to get up to Mount Rushmore, uh, you may find it a little bit difficult. So uh, by a lot of estimates, we're going to need somewhere in the neighborhood of about 200,000 or so chargers around the country. And the the uh, announcement today seems to suggest that they're going to be putting in about 30,000 of those chargers. Now, let me make it very clear. 30,000 chargers, not charging stations. But even there, that's good news because, you know, a lot of times people drive up right now to a charging station and they may only have one or two places to plug in uh, this this uh, joint venture, which involves manufacturers like BMW, Honda, Kia, Hyundai, uh, General Motors, uh, Stellantis, Mercedes. I think I got them all. Yeah. Uh, they'll be looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 chargers with about 10 to 20 chargers at every location. If I need gas and I pull up to a gas station and I go to the pump and maybe the pump is not working properly, I can go in usually to the uh, office of the gas station and, and say to the manager or whoever's on duty, uh, your pump's not working and they'll make some fix or they'll tell me to go to a different pump or whatever and, and I'll get my gas, uh, which raises the issue of reliability. Uh, in the case of these stations, I presume they're not going to, maybe they will, they're not going to be owned in a way a gas station is where you, you drive in and there's an actual complex with people in there, right? These are just going to be freestanding. No, actually, one of the no? interesting things uh, is that they're moving in the same trend as what some of the other EV charging companies are doing right now. Uh, companies like EVGo, ChargePoint and the like have been moving away from having just Chargers sitting in the middle of nowhere, which still is a lot of what we see. Uh, they're going to follow much more like the the gasoline station model, where you'll also have, say, a fast food joint or a, a convenience store or the like. So you'll have something to do while you wait for your charge. And today, depending on the vehicle, it may take you, well, in some cases, more than an hour if your battery is pretty much drained to get ready to go again. More and more as these faster charging uh, uh, chargers come on, and as new technology comes on board, charging times are getting shorter and shorter. It's not unusual now for a few a few companies to have it down to thirty minutes, twenty. Some are even targeting ten minutes. But still, this will give you something to do. Now, if you'd like, let's talk about that reliability issue because that's a big one. Yeah. Well, uh, you may recall about a year or some ago, uh, the folks up at UC Berkeley came up with a study looking at all the charging stations, the public charging stations 
around the San Francisco Bay Area? And the answer that they got wasn't very good. Something like about a quarter of all chargers were dysfunctional at any particular time. Not good. I own uh, a Ford F-150 Lightning, and I have run into that problem. Uh, in some cases, uh, pulling up to, well, an Electrify America station at a, a Walmart not far from here when I was going on a long trip, and half of the half the chargers were out. Uh, this is a real issue right now, and it's one both the charging companies and the automakers are aware of and worried about because it scares off potential EV buyers. Uh, they're designing entirely new types of chargers, they claim, and they are going to make reliability as important as putting those chargers in places where people will actually need them. Yeah, I can't help but worry about the uh, or, or think about the growing pains of, uh, of of this, you know, going to strictly electric vehicles down the road. And one thing I've often thought about is if, say, I'm driving to Vegas and where I might have to stop for gas and, OK, I'm, I'm done in two, three minutes or whatever it might take. You're saying at least at least 10 minutes right now, uh, maybe um, a half hour. Yeah, it, let's say that most of the EVs out there are in the range of a half hour to get up to the uh, the 80% mark, which is when the chargers slow up. That gets into battery chemistry, and we don't want to get into that yeah, right yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, we're starting to see some, the Hyundai Ioniq 5, the Kia EV6, the, uh, the Porsche uh, Taycan. These are starting to get down into the 15, 20-minute range. General Motors has set a target of getting down to as little as 10 minutes. And you'll see even faster times as new battery technology, such as solid state, comes to market. So mm. the trend is in the right direction. Okay. Now, re re remember, there's not that many EVs out there, only about 2.3 million out of a, of a U.S. fleet of about 300 million passenger vehicles. So the impact of all this is relatively minor today. By today. the end of the decade, it's going to be 30 to 40 million vehicles on the road. This becomes important. Yeah. Paul, thank you. Again, that's uh, Paul Eisenstein, publisher and editor-in-chief of the Detroit Bureau.com, which covers the automotive world. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Chris Seaton's in for Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Imagine taking a swim in the ocean and the water is so warm it feels like you're in a sauna. Well, you don't have to imagine. Just head to the Florida Keys. Water temperature in the area apparently has hit triple digits for two straight days, at least according to some estimates. It might be the hottest seawater ever recorded. Andrew Ibarra is a researcher with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration who's taken a kayak out on these waters in the Florida Keys. Andrew, thanks for being with us. Hi, a pleasure to be here. Can you hear me all right? Oh, can you, loud, and, loud and clear. So how, it sounds like the setup to a joke, but how <laughs> hot is it, the water there? It is extremely hot. Um, you get in and you kind of already start, feel, it feels like you're starting to sweat. Um, it's very hot. Um, yeah, it's just like kind of absurd. Um, you jump in expecting to cool down, but it's really just as hot as the air, almost. How, how warm does the water usually get in South Florida during the summer months? Um, in the, so I can speak for the Keys rather than the most of South Florida, but in, in, in the Florida Keys, at this point in the summer in June and July, water temperatures, you'd expect normally around 83 to 85 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and right now we are experiencing water temperatures to be 88 to 93 degrees. So, um, so the water so temperature is, is 93 degrees Fahrenheit. In certain areas in the Keys, yeah. 
Well, okay. So what is that doing to everything from the coral coral uh, reefs to fish? Um, so the incredibly high water temperatures are affecting the coral reefs here in the Florida Keys in a, in a very severe way. Um, in the past, like, five, six, seven days, um, we have experienced um, mass bleaching in a lot of parts, a lot of the shallow reefs in the Florida Keys. Um, coral bleaching is um, coral, it's, a, it's a term used to describe when corals become heat-stressed. Uh, heat they get too stressed out by the, the hot water. Um, it becomes unbearable for them. Um, they expel their algal um, symbionts. Uh, it's called zooxanthellae. It's algae that lives with the, the coral. This algae provides the coral with its color and provides it its uh, main food source using photosynthesis. Um, so the coral gets its main food source from the zooxanthellae, and when they're expelled by the coral during these really hot temperatures, um, the corals turn white. And that's what we call coral bleaching. And this, the, we've seen this, this happened kind of at the snap of the finger this past week. Um, it kind of went from zero to 100. Um, when corals bleach, it doesn't mean they're dead. They are still alive. It basically means they've lost their main food source and they can survive for a few weeks um, if, and come back and they, they can return back to, to normal if conditions improve, if water temperatures you know, go down. Um, but right now it's just so hot and it happens so quickly that some corals have bleached and died within days. Um, and they can stay bleached. You typically corals will stay bleached for a couple weeks. Um, but we've been experiencing on um, for, for, for some colonies, for some corals, they've, they've died within days. Andrew is a and, researcher. Um, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, like, I I heard, was starting to hear about this stuff um, going on. Um, I was asking around about one of my favorite reefs, Chica Rocks. I do a lot of work on at Chica. Um, it's in Isla Mirada in the Florida Keys. And I had, no one knew anything. I had, hasn't been there. So I took my kayak and paddled out there um, to go check it out for myself because I was super concerned. Um, Chica Rocks is kind of a sentinel reef for the Florida Keys. It's kind of one of the last remaining hope spots, essentially. It is still covered 40 and 30 to 40% of uh, coral coverage um, for the substrate, whereas other parts of the Keys are as low as 1% to 2% coral coverage. Um, so Chica has a lot of coral. And I went out there and saw that it was all bleached. Um, mm. Every coral colony of every species was exhibiting, you know, um, signs of bleaching from light paling to partial bleaching to full out totally bleached, um, including some that have that had died earlier in that week. Wow. Yeah, I've, I've done some snorkeling in the Isla Morada area a few times. It's, it's, it's just breathtaking. It's beautiful there. Andrew, as a researcher, mm -hmm. uh, before we let you go, your thoughts on why this is happening? Can we blame climate change? Uh, I think we can. Yeah, um, it's definitely, this is a very, uh, you know, the NOAA has been reporting that it's been, what, like 20-something consecutive days as the hottest ever recorded global temperature. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the Earth is just getting hotter and hotter every year. I think we're breaking records. Um, so I think climate change is 
very much to be blamed. Um, the anthropogenic effects that we're having on our ecosystems, for sure. Okay. Andrew, thank you for your time again. That's uh, Andrew Ibarra. He's a researcher. He's taking a kayak out onto those waters, those very hot waters off the Florida Keys. There was a hearing today in Congress. There's often hearings well, there's in lots Congress of hearings about in Congress. lots of things. This that, is a different one, though. This is kind of mm. a different one because mm. it looked into UFOs and what was said at that hearing. It might sound as if it comes right out of a science fiction plot. Yeah, former Air Force intelligence officer testified and said the United States is concealing a long-standing program that retrieves and reverse engineers UFOs. Nick Pope is a consultant and investigative journalist. He formerly ran the British government's UFO project in the 1990s at the Ministry of Defense. Nick, thank you for taking some time for us today. Thank you. Good to be on the show. Uh, first of all, what did the American public learn today that perhaps we didn't know yesterday? Well, the bombshell, really, was to hear, uh, not just in, in some conspiracy forum, but to hear from Congress in an official hearing that somebody who worked on this issue, verifiably so, for the U.S. intelligence community, says that all these rumors that we've heard for years about recovered craft and non-human intelligences, as he puts it, all those rumors are apparently true. Uh, and so that was on, put on the congressional record formally today. And some inc incredibly interesting breadcrumbs about the specifics of this were dropped. But to be very clear about this, uh, let's let's say that it is the case that the U.S. has a, a or has had a secret program to retrieve and reverse engineer UFOs. A UFO, by definition, isn't necessarily from outside the Earth. It could it could also be some technology that perhaps one of our own adversaries has developed, and we would be reverse engineering that as well. Well, the, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and others have looked at that theory. And uh, absolutely, the idea that it could be our own uh, Black Project tech or, or something from an adversary, that has been considered. But apparently, according to David Grush, the, the main uh, whistleblower that we heard from today, no, that theory has been considered but eliminated. I, I mean, he was very specific. He said, I can give you in a classified scenario, not in the, the public hearing that we had today, but in a classified scenario, he said, I can can take you to the, the agency or agencies that, that runs all this, the specific geographical locations, uh, project names, everything. So um, th this, this really seems to be an invitation to Congress to, to take the next step and, and try and verify it. And that's what they're now going to do. Well, I was going to say, I mean, despite all of the verbiage to date, there still is no actual evidence. And I believe it was the, uh, the late astronomer Carl Sagan who used to say that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And to date, I mean, you worked in the British government's uh, own UFO project right in the 90s. Did you ever see any extraordinary evidence? We saw some intriguing evidence in terms of some of the data we had, whether it was pilot sightings. These things are also tracked on radar, of course. And every time you see speeds, maneuvers and acceleration that goes way beyond the cutting edge of anything you have, indeed, way beyond the cutting edge of, of what the laws of physics seem to say is possible, uh, you, you certainly sit up and, and pay attention. But, you know, I, I 
totally appreciate the people who say, you know, show me the beef. Um, you know, where's the beef with all with all of this? And an analogy I use is that when I worked at the UK Ministry of Defence, lots of people in headquarters building worked on nuclear policy. Um, very few of those had actually touched a nuclear bomb or missile. But of course, it didn't mean these things don't exist. It's, it's just there's a difference between the policy people and and the engineers. So just because we've not yet seen the smoking gun um, doesn't mean it's not there. And as I say, Congress is now going to try and verify this. In fact, they, they have been working on this for some time. Well, that leads to my next question, Nick. Then what happens now? How do investigators in Congress get more hard proof? What what can be done moving forward? I, I think two or three things. Firstly, more people with direct knowledge of these programs have indicated that they are willing to testify if certain protections are, are put in place. And, and whistleblow protections, of course, are now enshrined in the defense bill uh, for, for specifically for this topic. Uh, so those people are coming forward. So there will be further hearings. So that further hearings is the answer. But the other thing is today's hearing involved the House Oversight Committee, but both in the House and the Senate. Of course, we have other committees involved with this, um, arguably ones better placed in terms of, of their security clearances to receive some of this information. And I'm talking about the armed services committees and the intelligence committees. So there needs to be coordination between these committees. And again, that is happening now, but it's a difficult job for the staffers, given that a lot of this, you need a, a top secret SCI clearance to even get in the room with these people. Very quickly, because uh, we're going to run out of time, Nick, is there anything that you heard today from the congressional testimony that has convinced you that these uh, craft, if they exist and if it's being uh, if they're being held by the U.S. government, in fact, comes from other planets, other civilizations? I think it was David Grush's very specific assurances that he could tell people exactly where all this is and who's running it, because you don't do that under oath in Congress unless you are very, very sure of yourself, not right. least because it would be breaking the law. Nick, thank you. Nick Pope, consultant, investigative journalist. That's it for In-Depth.